Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, December 8th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a turning point for the family of Emmett Till. Then, healthcare leaders in the state eye COVID relief. And how Jackson hopes to spend its chunk of millions in infrastructure cash. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. U.S. Justice Department is closing its latest investigation into the 1955 lynching of Emmett Till without filing further charges. The case was reopened in 2017 after writer Timothy Tyson claimed in a book that Carolyn Bryant Donham, a white woman whose long claim Till made sexual advances towards her, told Tyson she lied about the incident. The end of the investigation marks a key point within the decades-long dispute over what truly happened in the day leading up to the murder. Wheeler Parker Jr. is Emmett's, uh, Emmett Till's cousin. He tells MPB's Rob Lane that even now, more than 50 years after Till's death, most people haven't heard the true story. You buzz me that when I tell my story, they say I allege. Other people want to tell they write the story and it's wrote as the truth. That is not bargain. That is That is absolutely absurd. And you have no control over that. No mm. control whatsoever. I was at the event, and we were telling the story. They told they had about five PhDs there, telling the story about Emmett Till. They had no experience. So when I got up, I said, man, I said, I don't think I know Emmett Till. It's still like they had a right to kill you. He whistled. Sure, he whistled. He violated the southern way of life, not a law. And they don't deal with that. They don't deal with how wrong this boy was beating, and people heard him. They could hear the licks, how he was beating, and he was screaming for his life. And I just wonder how he could even do that. They don't talk about the injustice of it. That's what they don't talk about. 
and brush with the Huey paint. And I'm not afraid of you guys. I go with white women all the time, all that kind of stuff. Ain't nobody in their right mind going to say that to people that, that beat them half to death. But he, like I said, for 30 years, was like he got what he deserved. That's what we live with. As I understand it, you were you were with him. You were pretty much up until the time that he was kidnapped. Is that correct? I moved to this town where I'm at now, Argo Summit, Illinois, in 1947, next door to Emmett Hill. It was a common thing for the people of North to send their children back south every summer. So uh, it was decided that I would be going back south with my grandfather to visit my uncles. So Emmett found out that I was going. Of course, he became very serious about trying to go, too. It was 1955 of August. Well, Emmett and I was never separately once we got there. We left Chicago together, and we were together until he was kidnapped. We went to the store uh, there in money, and I was in the store purchasing some things, and I remember Emmett coming in. No, no one was in the store but me, Emmett, and Miss Bryant. We were in there together. All three of us in there together. Absolutely nothing happened. Later on, she came out. And that's when he whistled because he loved to make people uh, laugh. He, uh, he, he's like the center of attraction. So he whistled. We could not believe that this boy whistled at a white woman in 1955 in, in uh, Mississippi. It's like signing your own death warrant. And uh, we just, and when he did that, we all just beeline to the car. It's about sundown, and finally we got going. We're going down this gravel road that led to my grandfather's house, and dust was flying everywhere. And then there's a car behind us. We said, man, they're after us already. They're after us. They're after us. So my uncle Maurice, who was 16, the same age as I was, he sped up and jumped out the car and ran to the cottonville. Of course, we're running over each other, following, following all over each other. This is a Wednesday. We just got there that Sunday. And the car passed by. And we regrouped. And, of course, Emmett asked us not to tell my grandfather. Thursday passed by. Friday, we didn't tell my grandfather. Saturday, of course, on Saturday. Uh, and in the south is where people come from, all these little hamlets and cities from all through the country, and they come to the large town, which is this town of Greenwood. And we stayed there till about midnight. And on the way back home, we stopped at one of those jug joints in four fields of another place. And we got to my grandfather's maybe about 12 or a little after. And at 2.30 in the morning, I hear these people talking. Uh, talking about what happened at the store. So we want to talk to the fat boy that did the talking at the store. And is there anything about a whistle? Or nothing, and I said, "Man, listen!" I said, "Man, we get ready to die," and I started praying, and I shaking like a leaf on the tree. I said, "God, if you just let me live, so I'm gonna do right." And when death is imminent, you think about every evil thing you ever done, the bad thing you ever done, and it's a large former landlord's home that we lived in, screening porch and off the porch. You had a big bedroom on each side of the house. And you go into the bedroom, you go straight to another bedroom, no hallway. My grandfather was on one side, and I was on the other side, my uncle Maurice. He had no idea where Emmett was, so he started with me. And, you know, you could hear him coming, 
and you see them coming and come in with a flashlight and a pistol in the other hand, and it's dark as a thousand midnights. I mean, you just it was terrible, pure terror, terror. So I uh, closed my eyes waiting to be shot. And I opened my eyes, and they went on past me. And, of course, they aroused me out of the third bedroom. And, and uh, I don't know what he was saying. I think he went to put his socks on. And they were very irate. They were they were very upset. And he wasn't saying the yes, sir, no, sir, whatever. It, it was pure. It was pure hell. You know? So they left with him on through shore. They left with him. That's the last time we saw him alive. How old were you? Sixteen. How did you feel? Horrible. It just—it was—it was—you don't want to be that afraid, you know, because you knew you had no protection. It was pure terror, pure terror, and uh, and you, you knew the position you were in, and you felt so helpless. And you're praying to God. You ain't looking to your grandfather and grandmother. You're not looking for any human being to help you because you know there was no help, nothing that they could do. The two men who were tried for Emmett's murder were, of course, acquitted by an all-white jury. Mm -hmm. An FBI investigation was opened later. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The investigation... You know, back in 1955, there was no investigation by the federal government. They would not get involved. 2000, that's how many years later. Things are changing. Things are getting better. Then they did the investigation. And, of course, they they investigated and came up with what they came up. And then they did another. When Tyson wrote the book, that was another investigation. And that's kind of where we ended up at right now about the book, the story that he told. Yeah, can you tell and, us a little uh, bit more about that book and the revelations it contained? Well, you know, it's like he said in it his book gave me a sense of how can I say uh not freedom but gave me a sense a relief, you know, it's like yeah, because he had been demonized. He got what he deserved, and because of her, what she said, and Tyson saying that she said she lied on him. So I felt great. That's what I've been looking for all my life. I'm not trying to see somebody go to jail. I want the truth told. Uh, of course, in the, in the uh, investigation, they couldn't say Tyson lied, but at the same time, they couldn't prove that he lied or didn't lie. You know what I mean? So they closed it out. After 66 years, uh, the case was as of now. Something come up and got some new evidence that can always revisit it or open it up. How do you feel now that the case is closed, as you said, after 66 years? I'm glad it's over with. I'm glad it's over with. In, in, a, in a sense, image death changed my life almost shortly after it happened. It changed his mother's life. Sure, laugh at heaven. So we, we're we here put on earth to serve people. We had a life besides that we hated it happen, and uh, we didn't spend our lives trying to get nobody put in jail or trying to make them pay. But as uh, 
his mother said, I listened to her speech. She said God took hate out of her life 47 years prior to that speech. She had the same attitude I had. You're so busy doing what you're supposed to do to help humanity. You don't have time. You got a job to do. But still, you say you're troubled by the fact that you feel like so many things were said and written about Emmett that were just flatly untrue and that mischaracterized oh, yeah. who he was as a yeah. person. I'm wondering if you'd be able to share a memory, and I know this was decades and decades ago, but if there are any memories that you have that you think speak to who Emmett Till truly was, a moment in which he showed his soul, a moment of kindness or fondness or fun that you would want people to remember Emmett Till in? Well, he, he was uh, he was a natural leader, and I can remember my little sister was born in 1948, and, and he loved pushing her in a stroller so him and my brother would kind of get into about who was going to care for her. He had that kind of caring spirit. And remember how he lost the softball game for her. He was so slow. He, he'd coming home and got thrown out. He, but uh, those kind of things... Uh, you remember by him, basically it's fun, fun loving prankster type ways and and um, trying to help someone. And but I think he speaks louder in depth than he would if he had lived. I think so. Wheeler Parker Jr. is Emmett Till's cousin. Coming up, how Jackson hopes to spend its chunk of millions in infrastructure cash. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi health care officials appeared yesterday before a Senate subcommittee tasked with distributing federal COVID-19 relief funds allocated to the state. MPB's Desiree Frazier reports. A leaking roof and antiquated technology are some of the infrastructure problems at the Mississippi Department of Health's main campus in Jackson. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dodds tells legislators. Believe it or not, we still let use a lot of fax machines. Now, that's not just a, a problem of us, but our infrastructure and our communications with docs and hospitals, a lot of it's still antiquated. So um, when I talked to some of our, our uh, federal colleagues in Congress and they learned that we're using a lot of fax machines for COVID reporting, they were absolutely appalled. So we need some IT modernization for sure. Dobbs says it will take nearly $14 million to upgrade the department's computers, phone system, and Internet. He also says it would take another $107 million to upgrade many of the state's 92 county health departments. Dr. Luann Woodward, Vice Chancellor of University of Mississippi Medical Center, also made her request to lawmakers. She says some of the campus buildings, like the nursing and dental schools, date back 50 years or more. Both of those schools are in facilities that are outdated and undersized and not modern. They are not aligned with the modern day type curriculum for training nursing students and dental students. Woodward is requesting $360 million of the federal COVID-19 relief funds, which would include a new comprehensive cancer center. Desiree Frazier, MPB News. 
Still ahead, how Jackson hopes to spend its chunk of millions in infrastructure cash. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi is set to receive millions in new infrastructure funding via the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Assistant EPA Administrator Rahika Fox makes clear exactly where in the state she wants that money spent. For communities like Jackson, Mississippi, that have historically struggled to access state revolving loan fund dollars, this really kind of opens the door for, for disadvantaged communities. So we uh, are, are really excited to roll up our sleeves and work with states on prioritizing those underserved communities. Of course, it'll take a while for all the federal cash to work its way down to the city level. But if and when it does, what's the plan? Our Kobe Vance talks with Jackson City engineer Charles Williams. Well, I think there's two areas right off. One is obviously improvements that both of our water treatment facilities, that's O.B. Curtis and J.H. Fuel. And then the second would be monies that will be allocated toward the distribution system and making improvements there. Whenever you say distribution system, is that like updating the pipes that are in the ground? That's correct. The city has a connection of distribution systems that takes water from both of our treatment facilities and provide waters to our residents and businesses. Are there going to be any improvements y'all are looking into into making it more accessible for the residents of, say, South Jackson to get water whenever you know, there is lower water pressure? Well, the improvements at the plant will assist our areas over in South Jackson. We are right now making an investment in a new 48-inch water main that is located downtown that's also going to assist South Jackson. So that's money that was is using from the AR funds and so both of those areas, uh, you know, if we were to get some additional monies, could assist with our residents in South and West Jackson. Is that um, bringing on more equipment to be able to produce more uh, produce more water a day, or is it uh, other improvements that would help for you know s- sustainability going forward? Most of it's mechanical, just making mechanical improvements to a lot of the equipment that is aged and just needs to be upgraded to, to new technology in order for us to minimize the downtown, downtime, excuse me, of, of making uh, repairs so, uh, you know, randomly uh, as, as it relates to the plant. And so that would just decrease the time for us uh, just, just investing in just, in, in just overall maintenance. So those improvements are, are vital. And also, too, that's going to hopefully minimize the impact to our residents as far as when we have issues at the plant, you know, a lot of times it will decrease the pressure in the city. And so some of our residents will get low water pressure or no pressure during that time while we're making those, making those fixes at the plant. If you had to ballpark, how much do you think the city of Jackson will be requesting from the state of this funding to try to make those repairs? Well, I'm not, we're not really sure what our request is going to be, you know, we were just notified that, you know, obviously $75 million will be given to the state. And obviously the, the governor and lieutenant governor and the speaker will have the discretion of how that and the legislators will have the discretion of how those funds will be, you know, divided amongst the, the municipalities and, and local governments within the state. So, 
you know, Jackson is probably going to, to make a, a substantial request, but, you know, really we hope that whatever money that is allocated toward for Jackson is a good amount of that money because, you know, the needs are there for us to address these issues within our infrastructure system. What do you think those changes could mean practically for the residents of Jackson? Well, overall, we want to be in compliance, and that's with the Safe Drinking Water Act and also with the Clean Water Act. And so anytime that we can make improvements that would or will minimize the disruptions uh, to our citizens as it relates to having safe drinking water, you know, that's where we want to put our money. And so, you know, any monies that we will get would, will go toward those efforts. Now, this funding is going to be distributed over the period of several years. Um, how long do you think some of these projects might take to complete if, if they are well, granted the funding? This is not a quick fix. And so, you know, we didn't get to this situation overnight. It's unfortunate that we are in this position. And, and so we're looking for funding opportunities to assist us with moving forward and getting out or getting into a better position. But this is going to have to be, you know, sustainable over several to 10 years in order for us to see dramatic improvements. But the one thing that we have to do is make sure that we are funding projects and performing projects every year that aids in the improvement. You know, we don't need any gaps during that time. And so it's, it's important that we have a plan in place that is a sustainable plan over the next couple of years and then having the funding in place that, so that we can implement the plans that that are designed for those improvements and then so we can go toward construction. What do you think it can mean for the people of Jackson to see those improvements going on in that manner? Well, you know, this is obviously we've seen the disruption in the in the water system and how it affects you know our residents how it affects our businesses and how it affects our school systems you know both our higher learning uh, areas and also to you know our elementary students in in JPS and so this uh, the the opportunity to have you know monies come in and make these improvements is going to better the quality of life for all of those that are that have been affected over the past year and in prior years you know, due to outages uh, with no, due to no water. As an expert in your field, I did want to get your reaction just professionally to uh, this funding coming to Mississippi. What do you think this could mean, not just for residents in Jackson, but residents across the state that have dealt with their own aging water systems in their communities? Well, I think for urban communities like Jackson and rural communities that are within the state, the opportunities to have monies come in to improve your water system is is vital in order to ensure that you're complying with the Safe Drinking Water Act. So it's a big deal. And, you know, every year uh, more regulations are placed upon, you know, these urban and rural communities to comply with the Safe Drinking Water Act. And so anytime that you are able to get uh, monies from the federal government that lessens you know, you having to, you know, levy additional taxes or rate increases against your your uh, residents within your community because that's more money they'll have to pay to ensure that these improvements are done. Charles Williams is Jackson City Engineer. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. 
Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.